So please hear Bibles again. We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And then also we're going to turn to Acts chapter 8. Again, so if you have maybe a piece of paper put into one of those portions. We'll start in Isaiah 53. And then we'll turn across to Acts chapter 8. Our text in Isaiah 53, again continuing our studies uh, through this wonderful chapter of the suffering servant. Our text today is verse number 8. The word of God says, He was taken from and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And then turn across to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And of course we have the account here of, of Simon, or sorry, of, of Philip and the, and the eunuch. In verse 26 it says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, and eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before, her, before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Amen. May God be pleased to bless his word again to your souls uh, today. Well, last Lord's Day, I mentioned the honorable, life-changing desire of the Greeks to see Jesus. And I made the observation that we see the Lord in his word. The scriptures reveal Christ to your souls. He is a subject of all the scriptures, Christ in all of the word of the Lord. But we also see the Savior in the ordinances, not just the Lord's table, also in baptism, but it's also certainly in a particular way in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. You think of the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do what we do. We show the Lord's death. We display the Lord's death till he come. And the idea there is of displaying something to be seen. We are giving a visible representation of the Lord here. And so we really can say we come here to see Jesus. We come here to behold the Savior. We see here, of course, his humanity. We see representation of body and blood, the humanity of our Savior. We we see his sufferings, the body is broken. We see his work of propitiation, the blood is shed. God has set forth again, made visible Christ as propitiation through faith in his blood. We see Christ. 
I suppose in, in one simple line, we could put it this way, the Son of God takes on our humanity to suffer and shed his blood that sinners might be reconciled to God. That's what we're seeing here. Again, witnessing here in this ordinance. The Son of God taking on our human nature to suffer and bleed that we might be reconciled to God. And that is, of course, the message of Isaiah 53. It's a very core message. The Son of God taking on our humanity as our suffering servant, that he might suffer and bleed, that we might be reconciled to God. And in communion, what we're doing here is we're bringing together the word and the elements. The word of God is, again, bringing our minds to see and understand the elements properly. This morning we come to verse number 8. I deliberately read Acts chapter 8 also because that makes it clear under inspiration that verse 8 refers to Jesus. When it says he, verse 8, that is a reference to Jesus. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now this is one of the most Difficult verses in the Old Testament. Verse number 8 is tremendously challenging. There's one commentator, J. Alexander, who has written both on Acts and on Isaiah, helpfully. And so we can see his comments on both the Isaiah passage and the Acts passage. He says this, Every clause of this verse has been the subject of dispute among interpreters. I don't say that to discourage you. That's just a simple fact. There are things in the word of God, some of which are hard to understand. And the difficulty here is the meaning of the words. What do the actual words of Isaiah 53 mean? Again, he, he, he deals with this in a, in a few areas, Alexander. He, he talks about the word taken uh, that's there in verse number eight. He was taken. And he says, does that mean delivered or taken up or taken away? Are taken out of life. And again, immediately he says, well, there, there are four possible ways in which you may interpret, without doing injustice to the word of God, this word taken. All four can be proven through various other scriptures. He also mentioned the dispute regarding the word prison. Is it a physical, literal prison? Is it metaphorical? Even is it metaphorical of something of just oppression and suffering? He also does the issue then of judgment in verse number 8. Does that refer to process, sentence, or even punishment? Now, you see, you do the mathematics here. Four options for taken, a few options for prison, and a few options for judgment, and you multiply out the various you know, possibilities, and you get a, a tremendous scope of potential meaning in these verses. That's even without discussing the word generation. This is a challenging text. Not only are we faced with a challenge of the meaning of the words in the Hebrew verse number 8 of Isaiah 53, we also have to deal with the issues that Isaiah 58, 53, sorry, verse 8. Well, it's read differently in Acts chapter 8. Do you notice the words there? So Isaiah says this, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And then over in Acts chapter 8, In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Similar, but not identical. So how do we deal with this? How do you, as a, as a Christian, as a believer, work through these particular things? 
Well, the differences are explained because Acts is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Again, so as the Greek language predominant in the world before Christ, there was a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. You'll know the name of it. It's known as the Septuagint. And the writers of the New Testament almost always refer to that translation when they quote the Old Testament scriptures. And that explains many of the discrepancies you see between the language of the Old Testament and then the New when it comes to quoting some of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And so that's part of the explanation of the differences. But it's still challenging. It doesn't answer all the questions. But what it does inform us is that Acts chapter 8 indicates that the Septuagint translation has divine approval in this verse. It's not a mistranslation. And again, sometimes people have this idea that, well, just because the Septuagint is quoted in the New Testament doesn't mean the translation is accurate. Well, no, this has got divine seal upon it. I believe with all my heart that if Luke, in writing Acts, perceived a problem with the translation in the Septuagint, then that would have been addressed. And sometimes it is addressed. The Septuagint is not quoted verbatim by the New Testament writers. There are times they make alterations. But here, there is a consistent translation of the Greek that's being used here by Luke in Acts chapter 8. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And that actually is very helpful. It's a, it's a divine aid to understanding the language of Isaiah 53 and the verse number 8. Well, Alexander says this when it comes to uh, these verses. All that is necessary to the understanding of the narrative is what all interpreters admit. That like the verse before it, it describes the sufferings of an innocent and unresisting victim. So he's making the point that verse number 8 is connected to verse number 7. In verse 7 we're looking at a lamb that is silent. An unresistant, but yet unjustly treated victim. And if that's the connection, then we can see what this means. So turn across. I don't know where you are in your Bible right now, but you can turn across to Acts chapter 8. And then look at the words that are used here in Acts chapter 8. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Now that would immediately seem to imply that the word prison used in Isaiah 53 is being used in a metaphorical sense for affliction. To be pressed down, to be straightened, and in a metaphorical sense, to be humbled in that way. Seems to be the sense, it certainly was the way, that the Greek translators of the Old Testament understood that. And look, he puts that into this text. Now, with that in mind, then, in his humiliation... In his affliction, in his sufferings, his judgment was taken away. Here, I think the likely sense is this. That as he is afflicted, justice was taken from our Savior. In other words, he suffers injustice as an aspect of his humiliation and of his sufferings. Now, others... Again, I've seen that differently. Others have seen taken from to refer to his resurrection. He was taken 
out of affliction, out of humiliation. And the idea was it's referring to his exaltation. But I think the Acts 8 usage here makes that difficult, although the concept is true. Christ was taken out of the grave. He was taken out of judgment. He was taken out of affliction. That's, that's all true. But the point is, it's in his humiliation, not out of it, but in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And so the point is that an aspect of his suffering was the removal of a just and a fair trial. He undergoes injustice as part of his sufferings. Now, now Gill, again in characteristic Gill fashion, gives all the various ways in which this can be understood and, uh, and then makes some comments. But he says this, Dr. Pocock, this is Gill speaking here, has proposed a translation of the Hebrew that really ties these, and I'm paraphrasing now, that ties these two passages together. Uh, and the translation is this, because of affliction, even from judgment he is taken, or when he was humbled, he was taken from judgment. Again, there are various ways in which that can be understood. But he's making the point that in his affliction, he's removed from the experience of knowing justice. And he continues, when he was reproached, blasphemed, buffeted and spit upon, justice was not done him. Right did not take place, but was removed from him. And he was treated in a most unjust and unrighteous manner. Well, why? Why is that the case? We see if that's, the, if that's one understanding, I think it's the most consistent. If that's what's happening here, the Lord in his affliction is suffering injustice. Why? Well, that's answered in the rest of the text. Back to Isaiah 53. And who shall declare his generation? And goes down many, many views. There are some that this word for his generation refers to Christ's eternal nature. Who should explain the generation of the Son uh, coming from the Father? That's, that's a theological term. Not necessarily a term used in the Old Testament Scriptures. Others suggest it refers again to his future life. As a resurrected individual who shall tell his generation in that sense is an ongoing experience. But there's another way of seeing this. And again, I think it's consistent. His generation here is not so much referring to things about Christ. As it's referring to the generation in which he lived. And again, there were many who held that particular view also. And so they're saying he was suffering injustice. Because who can describe the wickedness of his generation? You think of the Lord's own words in Mark, Matthew chapter 12. It is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks the sign. And so the point is, he's suffering injustice at the hands of such an evil and a wicked generation. Therefore, he was cut off out of the land of the living. You see how all of them works together? In his humiliation, he suffers injustice at the hands of an unspeakably wicked generation as one therefore cut out of the land of the living. He dies because of the injustice and the treatment of his generation. But though he suffers injustice, the writer then tells us the reason for all 
was for the transgression of my people was he stricken. All of this, and so the last, the last clause then becomes a commentary on the verse. The transgression of my people was he stricken, and the sense there is that though men act unjustly, God's still in control. And God is working this whole situation in such a way that the suffering servant will die for the transgression of the people of God. And so one writer, Beale, says this, Luke is relating how the church in this early stage dealt with the offense of the crucifixion by emphasizing that it was willed of God. Acts 2, Acts 4, and now Acts chapter 8, this reference is made to the sufferings of Christ as being under the sovereign purpose and will of God. Now, I have deliberately taken the time to try and work through this text. It's already 25 past uh, 10 already. I've taken most of the time to do that. But I'm giving you what I think is the easiest and most consistent way to understand the text. Christ is suffering humiliation and affliction. An aspect of that is injustice. At the hands of an evil generation. Whereby they put him to death. But God's in control. And God's doing all of this. As Christ suffers the transgression of his people. So I want to leave you. With five very simple lessons. Two practical. Two doctrinal. And one devotional. Two practical. Corruption. And injustice are effects of the fall and are the marks of an evil generation. We should expect to see it in our day. I didn't say tolerate it, but we should not be surprised when we see injustice, particularly against the church, in evil days. This table is a reminder of the curse, isn't it? What are we seeing in this table? He was made a curse for us. He suffers under the curse. But part of that suffering is injustice. But we're living in a cursed world. So therefore, what we see here, we should see outside. We should see that in this world, that we're suffering the impact of the curse in this generation. We should not be surprised when people speak evil against us falsely for Christ's sake. Injustice should be the expected experience of the church of Christ. If I can give an illustration. Those who bake certain cakes should expect to be taken to court if they stand for righteousness in an evil evil day. That's part of living in the curse and the fall. And so you submit your soul to a righteous God who will judge righteously. I didn't say that we shouldn't fight against it. Justice is God's will. The appeal of God will always seek to do justly and pursue justice. But this side of eternity, we won't get that. This side of Christ's return, we will live in a continual experience of injustice. But you know the second practical encouragement? An evil generation cannot thwart the will and purpose of God. In fact, 
An evil generation will unknowingly do the will and purpose of God. Who can describe the generation that Christ lived in? Unspeakably wicked, evil and adulterous. And yet, in God's hand, simply an instrument to do what God wills. Be encouraged practically, doctrinally. Again, our time's marching on. Consider the depths of Christ's humiliation. We're here to see the Savior today again. Think of the depths of his humiliation. He took on our humanity with the need to eat and to sleep. He lives as a perfect man in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation. He lives with pure eyes, beholding the iniquity of that day. He stands before an unjust judge. He stands condemned to bleed and to die because of injustice. These are the marks of our serious humiliation. Public humiliation. The depths of Christ's humiliation. Think also, secondly, under doctrinal application, think of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It is the only way to consistently explain the cross. Any other attempts to explain the cross begin to deny the character of God in some way. They deny God's sovereignty or they deny God's justice. The only way to keep God just and sovereign is to understand the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. God is sovereign. There is nothing and no one more powerful than God. Jesus is sinless, perfectly sinless. Christ dies through unjust charges, humanly speaking. So how can this occur? How can Christ die in injustice under the sovereign will of a perfectly just and good God? Well, the only consistent explanation of this is the act of a sovereign God. Using the malice and hatred of sinners to bring about his eternal will to justly save sinners through the sin-burning sacrifice of his beloved son. Any other way to explain the cross will do some harm or injustice to the integrity of Christ or to the character of God. You want a hill to die on? Die on the hill of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Never, ever let someone deny that doctrine in your hearing. Without it, we are all doomed. And without that doctrine, there is no consistent doctrine of God. And yet that doctrine is consistently under attack in liberal churches. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Well, devotional. All who trust in Christ... Enjoy the benefits of his death and can be described as God's people. I've said to the end of verse number eight, I believe, is a commentary that comes from God himself. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. She shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus For he shall save his people from their sins. We are here beholding the humanity of Christ. 
suffering and dying through injustice so that he would be our God and we will be his people. You belong to him today. Enjoy that. Delight in that truth. No matter what anybody else says about you, I'm a child of God. Period. May God help us to delight in these words. He hath borne our grace and carried our sorrows, and with his stripes we are healed.